Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watches of Switzerland Group. In this episode, our head of watch buying, Mark Tolson, speaks to Robin Swithinbank, former editor of Calibre and writer for the New York Times, British GQ and the Financial Times. They talk about the history of the diver's watch, discuss the functionality and why they're the most popular type of watch worn today. Welcome to the latest Calibre podcast. Today we're going to be discussing dive watches. It's one of the most popular types of watches around today. My name is Mark Tolson. I'm head of watch buying for the Watches of Switzerland Group, and I'm delighted to be joined by Robin Swithenbank, who's a speaker, consultant, uh, and writer on watches for such uh, great titles as the New York Times. Uh, he writes for Hadinki, uh, the FT, amongst many. Uh, wel- welcome, Robin. Mark, great to see you. Thank you uh, very much for having me today. I, I must add, I suppose I should add, I was, uh, I'm was i a former editor of Calibre magazine as well. If I, if I remember rightly, I was the launch editor back in 2007, which uh, was a very proud day, and I'm delighted to see that the Calibre name lives on. Yes, that, that's that's true. God, yes, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, so uh, we, we go back a long way. We do. We really do. We, we really do. Well, it's uh, good. You're looking great. And um, so dive watchers, we uh, we shall immerse ourselves in, in the uh, in the world of, of dive watchers. What I think we'd like to do is is talk brief, uh, briefly about the history of, of dive watchers, you know, to give the listener a bit of an insight about how all that came around, what the main characteristics are, and then... Uh, why they're so popular today, because they are unbelievably popular, and then just a few of our favourites uh, across various price points, and hopefully that will that will cover uh, this massive subject. One of the things about the history of watches, when you get into it, there are there are so many disparate threads and people claiming all sorts of firsts, etc. It's quite difficult to kind of pick your way way through them. So I think we'll have to wish ourselves uh, g- good luck in uh, in trying to provide a, a reasonably comprehensive uh, download of information. So. I mean, the history of dive watches, I think we probably just context that first, that, that watches were initially, particularly for men, were pocket watches. They weren't particularly well machined, well manufactured, but I guess being in a pocket, uh, that afforded them some some sort of protection from, from the elements, from moisture, from dust, etc. Once watches started to, uh, to be worn on wrists in the, uh, I guess, in the early 1900s, the challenge of keeping water out, keeping moisture out and dust, that was really the first step in in, in, in the dive watch development, Robin. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right to, to, to raise the history of the pocket watch as part of the conversation, because uh, certainly in the 19th century, and, and for men in particular, the idea of wearing any sort of bracelet watch was considered really quite feminine. You know, these were delicate accoutrements worn by, by women on their wrists. And for men, they were on a fob and tucked away in a pocket to be withdrawn with great fanfare and uh, great pomp and circumstance. And, uh, you know, the idea that, that you might as a gentleman, as a man of, of substance and means, spend your spare time diving off the back of a boat in the Mediterranean or something like that uh, was, was a very, very long way away from what would have been considered to be socially normal. And uh, I, I suppose it's the evolution of um, subaqueous activities, but also aerial activities. And we can't really ignore the, the relationship between divers' watches and pilots' watches in this context either. The necessity of requiring a, an accurate, functional, robust timepiece on your wrist while you were at the helm of, a, of an aircraft was as, as much responsible for the shift of watches from pockets to wrists as, as anything else. Um, and really, without that, I'm not, it would have been perhaps some time, let's say, before the watch uh, was, was, was developed as, as a tool for underwater activities. Unfortunately, we can't avoid the importance of war in the development of, of well, any wristwatch, really. Um, 
during the First World War, when wristwatches became very important for timing manoeuvres, uh, to give one example, um, of course, it was also important that they were somehow resistant to, well, mud, I suppose, first of all, and therefore also water, but dust and magnetism and all sorts of other things. Um, and as you've already mentioned, these early wristwatches were very poorly manufactured, certainly by the standards that we recognise today. So one of the things that uh, soldiers would do would be to rub beeswax onto the case backs of their watches in order to try and prevent moisture from entering into the watch. Uh, that's not obviously recommended today. Uh, if you need a waterproof watch, there are plenty of um, very good models that are available at Watches of Switzerland and its various outlets. Um, but uh, I think we have to mention more in, in this context as well. Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, I didn't know the thing about beeswax. So every, every day is a school day. That's, uh, that's, a, that's really interesting. Goodness, good Lord. Yeah, I wonder how they came up with that. Yeah, so yeah, uh, war, as you said, is is, is a great developer of of, uh, of of things, but also one of the general challenges uh, that um, Mr. Hans Wilsdorf, who we all who we all know and love, the founder of, of, of Rolex. Um, I mean, one of one of his main challenges with uh, with wristwatch design was was keeping out water, keeping out dust, etc. And I suppose. We can't obviously talk about the uh, the early origins of of, of, of wristwatches and, and water resistance without mentioning him and and obviously the work he did with uh, well the, the developments he made from Paul Perigo and, and Perez um, screw down crown developing the oyster case uh, culminating obviously in that great marketing uh, marketing exploit in 19, uh, 1926. Yeah, I, I I love the language that they used around that particular event. I mean, you were referring to the vindication swim of of the swimmer Mercedes Gleitz, who um, who had claimed that she'd uh, she'd successfully swum the channel. I think she. I, I was looking at the news stories uh, to refresh my memory before we uh, started talking, and I think she she successfully swam the channel on her eighth attempt or something like that. So she was an incredibly incredibly determined young woman. Um, but uh, having claimed that she had done it, uh, obviously lots of people said, "Don't be daft. Of course you haven't. That's impossible." And so she said, well, okay, I'll do it again. Um, and it was at that point that um, Hans Wilsdorf, who was a genius marketeer, recognised an opportunity and so harnessed his watch to this uh, this, this enterprising young woman. And um, when, uh, unfortunately, her vindication swim ended in uh, disappointment. I think she was pulled from the water seven or eight miles from, from land. Um, but nonetheless, uh, of course, it was this fabulous marketing moment. And I've got the language up on my screen actually here, so because uh, Rolex then described it as being the one, the wonder watch that defies the elements, this Rolex Oyster, um, and it was hermetically sealed, uh, proof against changes of climate, dust, water, damp, heat, moisture, cold sand, or grease, which is a, a huge claim, and I'm not sure one that it could probably have uh, <laughs> would have stood up uh, under the sort of testing that we might expect to put a watch through these days, but a great moment in uh, in watch history, indeed, and, and I believe. Um... They had some examples of the watches in fish tanks in, in, in retailers' windows way back then, from, from what I understand it, uh, to, to sort of hammer home the point, which was, which was quite something. So, so you, had, um, you had Wilsdorf perfecting um, a, a, a case design that, um, that, that, that was effectively screwed in, the case back screwed in, the crown screwed in, uh, as one way of, of, of making a, a water-resistant watch. But it wasn't a dive watch as such. It was just... Testing it against this sort of um, well, it wasn't a dive watch. We, nobody had really gone particularly deep with a dive watch, but in 1932, Amiga uh, created the Marine, which um, which was the, the rectangular shaped watch with an outer case. So that was one of the other solutions to, uh, to, to 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 keeping water out of a watch was to have like a an outer case. Um, and they tested that in Lake Geneva, I think, down to 70 meters or so. Um, and so that was. 
that was kind of recognized as the first dive watch because I think it was the watch that went the deepest. Yeah, I, I believe that was actually used quite widely um, by some of the pioneers of the era. Um, a chap called Charles William Beebe, who was one of the pioneering oceanographers at the time and actually wore it diving in the Pacific. So that, that watch was actually put through uh, its paces in quite a serious way and by people, quite serious people who, uh, who would have relied on it. Indeed. And um, I mean, 1932, that's 90 years ago. And that's, uh, we're still talking about dive watches now. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's in, in watch terms, well, 90 years is, is quite a long time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. If I had a watch that was still working after 90 years, I'd be delighted. But uh, especially if I'd thrown it to the bottom of the Pacific a few times. <laughs> Indeed. So, so we, 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 we're establishing that water, diving watches obviously need to be, to be water resistant. One of the other things really was um, about visibility underwater. And I guess, um, I mean, lots of people were, were doing their best to try and create uh, legibility underwater. But I, I guess one of the key brands there is Panerai, really. Yeah. Of course, the funny thing about Panerai is that 60 years before it became a commercial enterprise, it was creating these very legible and uh, very uh, proficient diving watches, uh, watches that were designed exclusively for use by the Royal Italian Navy. Um, it's one of the miraculous stories of the watch industry, really. I mean, 30 years on from that moment where the brand became a commercial enterprise um, and actually started selling watches to civilians like you and me, this brand had been extraordinarily active for, well, as a watchmaker for, for 60 years previously, uh, but just without anybody really knowing about it. Um, and they, in 1936, they made the Radiomere, which was named after the luminescent material, which um, was actually radioactive, which is why it was called the Radiomere. Um, not good in the long term, but in the short term, glowed nice and bright. And the Italian Navy um, put out this request for this watch uh, in secret because they were developing all sorts of um, underwater military equipment including these dreadful things, the, the Silura, what's it called, the Silura Lenta Corso, which in English, unfortunately, is the human torpedo. And uh, they needed uh, a, a timing device, which could be worn by the frogmen who had the unfortunate uh, task of piloting these things underwater towards their targets. So they, they turned to Panerai and said, uh, who are a Florence-based um, workshop, really, a manufacturer of, uh, of other uh, military equipment, depth gauges and stuff like that, uh, and said, so can you make us? Can you make us this watch? Can you make us this 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 wrist worn device that will that will aid our frogmen as they go on their their misadventures? And uh, and so this is what they came back with. And they had to go by a Rolex, of course, which um, uh, is relatively well known, but uh, perhaps uh, not as well known as it might be. That uh, the wrist watch that Panerai created was basically a Rolex, and Rolex, of course, worked with all its suppliers to produce it. Uh, you know, as many will know, for that the watch industry is a, is a network of suppliers uh, before it's a, a network of dial names. And, uh, and this this first 1936 Radio was uh, very much a product of of that network. Mm -hmm. Indeed, and and and, and, it, and it kind of. The, the the large size and the uh, and, and the big Arabic numerals at the quarters are twelve three six and nine um, and and the sort of well you say the radium the the radiumir um, I mean that kind of set the standard or, or set their their design which is is still is still evident today uh, and it's amazing in watches how the original designs were obviously so good that they are continued today and we'll, we'll obviously talk about the Submariner later which is a which is a, a I guess a key in that sort of connection. 
And then the other, the other, I think, crucial component of a, of a dive watch is the development of the bezel in order to for a diver uh, to to sort of time his dive. I mean, I, I guess we have to mention um, the, the development of the Aqualung in, in uh, 1942, which obviously the air tanks, etc., had had a finite amount of of oxygen in them, so therefore timing a dive became quite crucial. And um, here we, we 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 probably turn to, to blank pan, don't we? And and um, and, and the fifty fathoms, I guess. As you said at the beginning of this conversation, there are a number of brands who claim firsts, and, and it can be quite difficult to navigate your way through uh, through those troubled waters. But uh, I, I think Blancpain can be considered to be the father of the modern diving watch. Uh, the, 19, the 50 Fathoms uh, launched in 1953, I think, and very famously worn by Jacques Cousteau um, in his Palme d'Or winning film, um, The Silent World. And, and as such, it's 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 sort of it sort of set the template, didn't it? It's the it, it's become. I want to say it's become the icon in the category, but of course it hasn't because it's 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 dramatically overshadowed by everything that Rolex has achieved. But the Submariner didn't actually come out until a year later. Um, and even if it has become the design non pare in the category, it wasn't the first. And I, I think that's an important thing to mention. And it's important to remember Blancpain's role in, in defining this category and defining the aesthetic, as you said, and introducing a, a commercially available diver's watch with a rotating bezel and, and water resistance to, to these 50 fathoms, which is what, 90 odd meters or something. I mean, that's right. I think, um, you know, just from, from, my, from my reading around, um, Jean-Jacques Fichte, the CEO of, of Blancpain at the time in the 50s, he was a keen sports diver. Um, you know, that was, a, that, was, that was one of his things. And um, I think he had to do an emergency ascent one, one time, from what I read. And um, he, he realized that some accurate way of timing a dive would be particularly important. And obviously, then I believe the uh, Bob Melubier, the, the French Navy guy, the head of the French Navy, he was looking at a watch that would allow timing underwater as well. For his French Navy Navy frogman, so I think he uh, uh, Fichte challenged the uh, the designers, the engineers at Blancpain to come up with some method of doing it, and the uh, of timing a dive. The unidirectional rotating bezel was the thing. And just to explain that to to, to the listener, really, is the bezel rotates um, in an anti-clockwise way, and you set the you set the the marker on the bezel at the minute hand, and that effectively times your dive. If you then inadvertently knock the bezel, it will only shorten the dive time, which gives you the security of uh, of not running out of oxygen. So that's that's why a bezel is important on a dive watch. So you mentioned Robin the uh, the Submariner, um, which, as you say, came out in in the in the early fifties, hundred meters water resistant with the rotating bezel, the black dial, and, and a sort of clear legibility. And fundamentally, the model today looks pretty much like the model from from nineteen fifty three fifty four. Which is it was a testament to the design of the watch. Definitely, yes. I, obviously, you mentioned a lot of the details, but I think it's the overall form as well, which is so successful. The sort of integration of the lugs and the integration of the bracelet, and it's it's a fairly seamless, fluid uh, piece of design, which also conveys uh, the sort of image of masculinity. This this image of of being tough and robust and reliable and dependable, um, and, and that's accumulated over a long period of time. But it's it's obviously. It, 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 it's based on the success of the initial product, and this was clearly a product that was very uh, was very proficient at doing what it said it could do, uh, and it was broadly adopted. I, of course, when we mentioned Rolex, I have slightly overlooked this when I was uh, just mentioning the the role of Blancpain a moment ago. Rolex actually created the Deep Sea, that sort of uh, the, the really peculiar looking wristwatch that wasn't really a wristwatch at all in, in terms of how practical it was, how wearable it was, but it was stuck to the outside of uh, of the Trieste Bathyscaphe. Um, and at various points over the course of the 10 years that followed it, it, it dived to extraordinary depths, including to the bottom of uh, 
uh, Challenger Deep. So uh, Rolex does have a, a, of course, have a, a very significant role in the in the genesis of the category uh, as as well. But the Submariner and and the we have to mention the Tudor Submariner as well, which I think was what fifty four as well, or maybe fifty five. That, that very much sort of mid nineteen fifties. And which followed a fairly similar form aesthetically. Um, those two watches have have really uh, have defined what we appreciate today as a diver's watch, and and what we appreciate in terms of what we really lust after too. Um, and we, I'm sure we'll continue to mention the Tudor Black Bay throughout the course of this conversation. But um, the Tudor Black Bay, when it was launched, was basically a 21st century um, authentic reproduction of that 1950s model uh, and the aesthetic uh, remains in in the current collection no matter the 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 case diameter and i think so much of the success of of tudor over the last 10 years has been down to the black bay i think there's no question of that whatsoever C- certainly in in the west um china may be a little bit different but um over on, the, on, on the th- this side of the world we have this uh, this innate appreciation of that mid-century diver's watch form which really was was brought to life and has been perpetuated ever since by by these two brands, by Rolex and by Tudor. Um, and I think a, a lot of what a lot of the nostalgia that underpins the industry and a lot of the what fuels our collective passion for the industry stems from what they achieved in the, in this period with these with these watches. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the fifties um, and, and the sixties. And I mean, it was the development of the tool watch, wasn't it? The diving watch. The chronograph for timing races, you know, the anti-magnetism in watches. It was an amazing time for the development. It was kind of like Switzerland was the Silicon Valley of uh, of, of watchmaking, uh, as as uh, technology is in Silicon Valley today, almost. Absolutely, it was it was the the global epicenter, um, and 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 that decade, and I suppose through to kind of the mid nineteen seventies, there was a sort of I, I tend to describe it as the golden age of watch design. There was a period of about thirty or forty years. When really every watch that we that anybody's ever loved was created, yes, all right. Over the last twenty years, we've seen the uh, su- a superabundance of micro brands and independents, who many of whom have have challenged the design status quo. Um, but essentially, what we consider to be a watch, um, and I suspect commercially, and you'll know much better than than I do, given your position. Um, but I suspect the majority of watches that are sold and uh, given and loved and appreciated and kept and well maintained uh, sort of conform to. Uh, one of the case designs, uh, one of those very familiar silhouettes that was created in that period, um, and it, you know, the Submariner is is one of those where if you if you blank it out and just leave the silhouette on a piece of paper, people will recognise it. Uh, the same with uh, Radia, uh, the Luminor, the Panerai Luminor, which was designed in 1950, um, and really the, uh, the 50 Fathoms as well. I think has a has a very recognisable silhouette too, um, even if it's not commercially as, as successful as some of those other models. Um, so. Yeah, this was a this was a pivotal moment in the history of watch design and uh, and the watch industry. That really really was really was. Um, so so divers watches we, we've established. Yeah, you know, they need to be water resistant. They have visibility rotating bezels. There is an ISO standard, um, the six four two five, which um, basically covers those points. You need a diving time indicator, as in a rotating bezel, a distinct minute track on the dial. Apparently, you be able to, you should be able to see the uh, the, the watch at twenty five centimeters. Visibility in, in total darkness, some indication that the watch is running, usually usually a seconds hand, magnetic resistance, shock resistance, chemical resistance, all, the, all those standards which uh, the ISO has, la- has laid out to be, uh, I think, recognized or certified as a diver's watch. But the majority of brands actually don't have their watches certificated by the ISO. But they all in more or less meet the standards, which, um, which I think is quite interesting. It's indicative of of, uh, of how 
the how much these devices are actually relied upon these days by divers and this is in a sense the paradox of the category isn't it that uh, the form follows function mantra has been flipped on its head in the last 20 or 30 years I, i'm not i'm not uh, that knowledgeable about uh, the world of of, of of diving certainly not at a professional level but for a long time now divers have relied on uh, electronic dive computers which supersede uh, mechanical watches in terms of the information that they can relay and also the accuracy of that information. Um, that, of course, doesn't negate the, the relevance or the value of a diver's watch, a, a traditional Swiss-made mechanical diver's watch. It uh, doesn't, doesn't negate the relevance of it as a, as a practical tool, as a useful tool, and, and even a necessary tool, because I think you know, a lot of divers, will, uh, most professional divers, will have a, a high-quality mechanical wristwatch on at the same time because it serves as backup in the event that the the dive uh, the dive computer breaks or the battery runs out or you smash the screen or something and so we sort of mo moved away from from this ISO standard being strictly necessary uh in, in in a diver's watch and obviously the ISO certification comes with a cost uh, and as a manufacturer in the same way that you may decide you don't need to chronometer certify your watch for accuracy you may decide you don't need to get your watch iso certified for for its diving credentials um because uh, there's an assumption on the consumer's behalf that this product is well made it will be waterproof and if it's not well you've got a guarantee on it so you can bring it back anyway um uh, so uh, yeah it's it's now more about the aesthetic it's now more about the style it's now more about what it communicates so uh, well, while i think there will still be consumers who uh, are concerned by and perhaps would even obsess over the ISO standard and, and that list of specifications as you just uh, outlined it. For the majority of consumers, it's it's simply not that important anymore. I mean, that's very true. And that's what we should like to focus on a little bit now, the, the whole aesthetic and, and, and why they appeal to people. And, and I think you, you, you sort of uh, you hinted at that. It, it's a kind of lifestyle thing. You know, people like sports cars. Lots of people buy trainers, but they probably don't go running so much. People love the aesthetic of a sports watch. That whole kind of um, adventurous, you know, James Bond, you know, obviously he wore a Submariner, he wears an Amiga, uh, Amiga Seamaster now. Uh, it's, it is a whole kind of, to a certain extent, the macho thing, the, 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 uh, the image you'd like to project of yourself, as well as obviously dive watches being being tough and resilient and visible and all the, all that good stuff unfortunately uh, for the right for whether for right or wrong we often well commonly these days associate ourselves with our purchases uh, with our with our habits with our consumption habits um, and so therefore what we wear and, and whether that's on our across our shoulders or on our wrist or on our feet as you've alluded to uh, has we've got to a point where that says almost more about us than uh, than the substance of our characters sometimes which um, or at least we'd like people to believe it does um, and when we live in a very image conscious world, as we know, and uh, where Instagram is 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 a, is a part of daily life for the vast majority of people, and uh, a wristwatch uh, for is a very powerful uh, illustrator of how you feel about how you approach life, yeah, how you want to project your image, as you said. Personally, I think that that can be a wonderful thing because because so often a watch design can communicate extraordinarily positive qualities. I mean, goodness, with a Swiss-made watch, as, as, as you and I would have said many, many times over the last 15, 20 odd years and beyond, it's a symbol of longevity. It's a symbol of consistency. It's a symbol of reliability. It's those practical tool watches, whether they be divers' watches or pilots' watches or engineers' watches or any other watch that was designed for a very specific purpose, which communicate those qualities probably uh, as effectively, if not more effectively, than any other category of wristwatch. I mean, the dress watch. I think we'll do the same. And if you look at something like a Calatrava, which is coming up for its 100th anniversary as well, um, 
these also are, are symbols of, of longevity and of consistency and, and reliability. There's something about the diver's watch which which means that which it which which communicates the idea that if 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 it was pushed, it would still it would survive. It's good under pressure. I mean, obviously, literally, a diver's watch is good under pressure. That's what it's designed to do. But metaphorically, it gives the impression that its wearer is good under pressure as well. Uh, there's a calmness, there's an authority about these watches and about, and therefore the assumption being about the person who wears them as well. Um, and yes, as you've mentioned, that is underpinned by uh, cultural associations with the likes of James Bond. Um, and, for, and even further back, you know, before Bond appeared on TV, Lloyd Bridges was appearing in Sea Hunt wearing a Rolex Submariner in the late 1950s. This, this, is, a, this is a trope that has existed for a very long time uh, and hugely effectively. And Jacques Cousteau himself, of course, as we've already mentioned, appeared on the silver screen wearing a Blancpain 50 Fathoms. So, so these heroic characters uh, who've shaped, uh, shaped all sorts of behaviours and all sorts of habits have done wonders for perceptions of divers' watches and luxury Swiss-made mechanical watches at large. Very true, wonderful, wonderfully put. And that that sort of transition from from a, a, a tool watch in, in the fifties to kind of the the luxury item that it is today, you know, where you can spend you know ten thirty thousand pounds on a on a on a, a Rolex Submariner eighteen carat, however however much it is these days. That the tool watches now are a luxury accessory, aren't they? And I, and I, and I, I kind of. I always seem to end up folding Gerald Genter and his and his and his role in popularising watches and and luxury sports watches into into nearly every conversation I have about watches. But I think he played a royal uh, a role with the Royal Oak and that development of uh, of of watches as a as a as a signifier of status and and some element of reliability and toughness. Completely, yes. Uh, which, considering he was an artist first and foremost, and and probably not the most dependable of human beings himself, without wanting to denigrate him in any way, it was quite extraordinary, really. But I think. What, what he did as an artist was he he captured the essence of 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 dare I say it, pure masculinity I don't know whether that's a stretch too far but um, I think the Royal Oak and the Nautilus and and uh, and then those designs which which sort of spun off the back of that design by all sorts of other designers um, uh, were all trying to capture the essence of what it meant to be a very sophisticated uh, gentleman of means uh, and also a man of action. Um, and yeah, so yes, I think you're absolutely right to, 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 to position his role in that way. I think the other thing to say when you mentioned something like an 18 carat <laughs> rose gold Rolex Submariner, which uh, clearly has, uh, was, is never intended to be used uh, several hundred meters under the surface of the water. The underlying reality that a watch like that demonstrates, and it's one that many watch brand CEOs will freely uh, broadcast, is that nobody needs a Swiss made, a luxury Swiss made watch. Nobody needs a mechanical watch. Nobody needs these products. They, that's the definition of luxury, you might say. The, the product is not necessary. Um, there are other definitions as well, as well, which are just as relevant. But um, divers don't need mechanical watches anymore, but they are beautiful. They are lovely. They are, they're sort of a, a blank canvas on which to, to, to pitch your own personality. Uh, and, and they, they're a mirror of what we want to see in ourselves. And uh, even if you have got a, a highly sophisticated, ultra-reliable electronic dive computer on your wrist, somehow it doesn't do that. Somehow it doesn't capture that essence in the same way. It doesn't carry the romance. It certainly doesn't carry the nostalgia or the heritage or the history. Maybe they will do in 50 or 60 years' time, but I doubt it because, of course, the technology becomes obsolescent so very quickly. 
And uh, for that reason alone, I think these watches will perpetuate. We will be talking about relics of mariners in 50, well, you and I probably won't, but somebody else will be in, in 50 years time. And uh, I think, um, and maybe that leads us into considerations of, of what kind of diver's watch to choose. But um, I think uh, one of the mantras that I use when, when advising people on which watches to go for is to look at designs from 50 odd years ago and ask whether or not they still work now. And really, we're talking about 50, 60, 70 years ago now as the years drift by. But uh, if a Rolex Submariner looked good in 1957 on the wrist of Lloyd Bridges on TV and it still looks good now, then the chances are that you're going to be wearing it in 50 years time because it will still look good then. And it's a very, very simple rule. It's a very simple mantra, but I think it, it stands it stands up pretty well under scrutiny. That's very true. So do you have any favourites, any particular uh, watches that you'd point the listener to? I mean, the list could be endless, obviously. It, the list could be endless because, as we've outlined, so many of the great designs in watch his, watchmaking history are divers' watches. And also, I think this is, this is the point at which I have to admit that I, I'm not a diver myself. I have dived. I dived for the first time very recently, actually. I went to, I went to the Maldives with, with Carla Fukura to, to follow the activities of one of their partners, the Man to Trust that they got me under the water for the first time, which uh, was a, a magnificent moment. And I was extremely fortunate to go and do that in, in the name of, uh, of, of professionalism. I think at, at the same time, what that illustrates is, is how I uh, would wish to be perceived myself because I own several divers watches without being a diver. Um, and I mean, I'm wearing at the moment my, my Tudor Black Bay Black uh, from 2015. I was one of those who managed to sort of squeak in in that eight month window when they were sticking ETA movements in them before they stuck the in-house movement in. And straight, strangely, this this watch, which I, I bought to sort of, you know, wear, wear on a daily basis has ended up being worth far more than I paid for it, which is jolly odd uh, for that one reason. And I've also got a Panerai uh, Luminor, just uh, just the base logo model, which my wife very kindly gave me for my 40th birthday, because it's a design which I've been I'd been hankering after since I first stuck my nose or dipped my toe, perhaps we should say on this occasion, into the watch industry. It's an entirely timeless design, uh, and I'm I'm quite tall. I'm I'm six and a half feet tall. And so I have reasonably large wrists. And so actually the diver, the diver's watch sits quite well on my wrist rather than some of the sort of the 38 millimeter things that are going around at the moment, which are often beautiful, but I stick them on my wrist and they just look silly. So I, I'm fortunate that I can carry off a 44 millimeter watch um, that was originally designed for diving without having any intention of ever wearing it in the water. That's it. We're, we're desk. I'm a desk diver as well, as they call it, you know. Where, <laughs> desk so, diver, a, a desk diver, yeah. I'll, I'll borrow that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I have... I see a lot of watches. Obviously, you, you mentioned Tudor. I mean, I think the uh, Pelagos FXD that they released several several months back, uh, late late twenty twenty uh, one. Uh, that that's that's a killer watch. That's great with the whole French Navy um, sort of tie in there. It, it, that's that's a wonderful watch. Um, and and I guess um, which we we've, we've recently launched in the UK and we've had it in the US for a, for a wee while is Doxa, who's Whose uh, links with dive watches are, are you know, are, are, well, are, are manifold really, um, from the orange dial, which is highly visible and underground to the uh, under underwater rather, to the development of the um, of the helium escape valve, which is something that many dive watches have. That was what 1969. I think they developed that in collaboration with Rolex as a, as, as a way of allowing the tiny helium um, molecules to escape from inside a watch when you've been doing dives deep under underwater yeah I, I, i'm always fascinated by that development and when i first came across the helium escape valve you know you had some that were automatic and some that were manual 
and, and these things sounded highly technical, impressive, and, and I sort of convinced myself that they were necessary in a diver's watch. And they are if you are a saturation diver, if you spend 28 days in a helium enriched chamber um, so that you don't have to decompress after every single dive, then yes, you need a watch with a helium escape valve. But the, the, re the reality is that most, most of us really will ne never ever have use for a helium escape valve. Actually, you, you, and what we're touching on here is innovation, isn't it? Uh, and divers' watches have been a platform for, for so much innovation over the years, which is another thing that I think makes them very appealing, uh, particularly to the sort of the more tool watch minded consumer, um, whether they're male or female. Um, for one of the examples I think which is relevant in this instance is, um, is the Seiko uh, 600 Pro Diver, which was released in 75, I think, mid 70s. And that was the first commercially available production watch uh, cast in titanium. And, and of course, these days, titanium is entirely normal. You know, we, we expect most brands, certainly if they're producing any sort of technical or tool watches, to have a titanium option. But whatever that is, 45 odd years ago, that was, a, that was highly unusual and highly innovative and, and you know, was a, became a benchmark. Um, some of the innovations that we see in divers' watches, of course, don't become mainstream, um, and yet, but at the same time retain this uh, an, an appeal by virtue of being quite quirky and odd. I mean, I think of something like the Oris Aquis depth gauge, um, which is actually quite a, is, is a good looking watch as well, but it has this really peculiar function whereby it actually allows the water into the crystal of the watch. It doesn't actually go into the watch itself, or at least it shouldn't. Uh, it goes into the crystal of the watch, and the watermark that that creates becomes a depth gauge when, when read, off a, uh, read off against the scale that runs around the dial. And that's a, a, an extraordinary innovation, really. I've never tested it. Uh, I don't know how accurate it actually is uh, at depth, but uh, I suspect it has uh, some functionality, some useful functionality. The time and effort and energy required to develop something like that is not insignificant. And I, 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 have, a, I have a real fondness for brands who, who, who try stuff like that, even if it's not commercially hugely successful. It sort of it, it becomes a bit of a marker post for them as a, as a company, but and something that we can get we can rhapsodize about. There's something rather whimsical about about complications or functions like that. Uh, that's true enough, and and I mean, it calls to mind some of the some of these strange ways that people have attempted to, uh, or brands have attempted to uh, stop a bezel moving. You think about uh, Tudor, uh, you think about the Ploprof from Amiga with that great big sort of plunger thing on the side, where where you turn the bezel and it retains. I mean, again, outlandish designs in a way, but they were they were functional, weren't they? And, and they were a way of tackling a problem, you know, in 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 history back in the fifties, sixties. Of course, and, and they and they will still be useful to some people. I mean, Rolex, Oris developed the rotation safety system maybe 12, 15 years ago or something like that in in partnership with a saturation diver who who said, "I need a bezel that doesn't move." And so they patented this device where you, you can lift up the bezel, rotate it, and then push it back down again, and it clicks into place. And lo and behold, you have a really secure device on your wrist, um, which when you're working 150 meters under the water on some electricity cables or something is, is, is important. Is, is important. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, of course, that creates the association that we, we as consumers look at and, and fall in love with. Um, and uh, yeah, I think as, as a brand, it's, it's important to, to have that level of distinction, that level of determination to develop something odd, something ballsy, something relevant. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. Well, um, so that was our dive into dive watches. Um, there we go. So I hope that's been an interesting insight. Dive watches are uh, they're a huge part of what we sell because manufacturers make them and customers like them. So you've got that loop there, but they are they are incredibly popular. They're available in our stores and they're available in online. Robin, 
thank you for your eloquent contribution. It's always fascinating to speak to you. So, my sincere thanks for uh, for your for your contribution today. It's been amazing. No, oh, thanks for having me on, Mark. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great, and um, and to the listeners, enjoy your watches and, and take care out there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast. We do hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple Podcast and Spotify.